Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Okay, everybody, if you've got your Bibles, let's open up to John 1, and let me pray for us while you turn there. Father, bless our time together tonight, uh, reading your word. Help us to understand it, uh, maybe better, this little passage than we ever have before. And Lord, give us wisdom to know how to specifically apply it in our own lives and context. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, tonight we're going to talk about the idea of follow-up. We've been doing this evangelism course all quarter. Uh, what if somebody actually prayed to receive Christ? What, what, what do you do next? And so, in some sense, it's about making disciples, but the very beginning stages of making disciples, you lead somebody to Christ, or maybe sometimes, this happens a lot, sometimes in the Bible Belt, I know it's happened to me before, you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and you find out the person's probably already a Christian, uh, but maybe they're a very baby, immature Christian, and they need help. So, um, this can be applied broadly to a brand new Christian, or maybe just a, a younger Christian. Um, so discipleship is what we're going to talk about tonight. And let me just say this very briefly. Uh, discipleship, um, the word disciple in the New Testament is a word that has a little bit of a broad range of meaning. Uh, similar to the way the word love is used in the English language, right? I can say I love my wife and I can also say I love ice cream. Um, hopefully I don't mean exactly the same thing by those two statements. Uh, by saying I love my wife, it's like I'm committed to her. I'd, I'd be willing to take a bullet for her. Uh, I'm not committed to ice cream, okay? I, I like it every once in a while, but I'm, I'm not willing to die for ice cream. So in a similar way, disciple in the New Testament sometimes is used in a very broad, generic way of any pupil, any learner, any follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. But then other times, it's used in more of a narrow, focused way of this kind of personal, intimate mentoring type relationship. So here, here's my personal definition of that second type of discipleship because that's what we're going to focus on tonight. What I would call the more narrow type of discipleship is it's a more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer to multiply. A more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer to multiply. What do I mean by that? I'll explain as we go along. So You may say, I'm so young in the faith. I'm new in the faith. I only came to Christ last year. Okay, that's fine. But there might be somebody that only came to Christ last week. You're more mature than they are. So even you could start mentoring them. Seriously. And if you think that I'm stretching that, just wait. Um, John chapter 1, and let's start in verse 29. And we're going to look very briefly tonight. But it may be two of the greatest discipleship groups of all time. One led by John the Baptist, who... Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, He was the greatest man ever born of a woman up until that point. And then Jesus Christ, who's also a pretty great guy for us to build our lives around, right? They're two discipleship groups. So, John chapter 1, starting verse 29. This is speaking of John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Skip down to verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed him. We're sure that one of them was Andrew. We're 99.9% sure the other one was John, the apostle. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon. Just a side note here. The implication there is probably John went and found his brother, James. And Andrew, likewise, went and found his brother, Simon. And said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay, so four quick points about what discipleship ought to look like, what good mentoring, what good follow-up of a new or a less mature convert ought to look like. And the first thing is this, repetitive. Did you notice John the Baptist, he sees Jesus one day and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then verse 35 says, The next day he's standing with two of his disciples and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. So much of good discipleship is not necessarily teaching new material, although there is a place for that, but it's teaching the old truths over and over and over again. You know, there's this famous quote by Martin Luther from his commentary on Galatians where he talks about how important the gospel is. And he says, we must constantly beat it into our own heads and beat it into one another's heads. So the basic truths, you have to repeat a lot. Okay, listen, maybe the best uh, picture illustration that we have of what discipleship is really like is parenting. Okay, now... Probably a lot of us in here have been parents. Those of us in here that have not been parents, you got parented at some point, right? And so let's just talk about that. I guarantee you some of the most important things in life your parents said to you over and over and over again, right? And I bet we could all tell a story. I'm thinking of something very specific right now, but I won't get off on that track. Of things that my dad said to me, this exact same phrase over and over and over again. And sometimes it didn't really make sense until about the hundredth time that he said it. Okay? Now that was not, he was a bad teacher. It was more about, I was a stupid, stubborn, arrogant, self-righteous kid that didn't listen well. Parenting is a great illustration for raising up disciples. It's spiritual multiplication. It's spiritual raising up the next generation. So you need to expect it to be repetitive. The second point is, it needs to be interactive. Notice this. The two disciples, Andrew and And John, leave John Baptist, and they go start following Jesus. And Jesus stops and says, what are you seeking? The best kind of discipleship has Q&A involved. It's back and forth. It's dialogue. It's not just a monologue. Now, please hear me. I mean, what am I doing right now for the next 30 minutes? Basically, I'm just teaching. I'm pro-teaching. I'm for teaching. I'm not anti-teaching. Okay? I'm as much for teaching as, as I think you can be and should be. But let me just give you an example of what I mean. Uh, there was a, uh, a couple that had been at Briarwood. They had left. They'd come back. They were actually on staff at Briarwood. And uh, this has been years ago. And, I, and my wife and I were out somewhere, and we saw the wife. And I uh, said, hey, how's it been for y'all being back? And she kind of paused, and she said, let me tell you what my experience at Briarwood is like coming back. I was like, great. I'd really like to hear it. She said, I get six good sermons a week. She said, I go to Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday, ladies drop in. Wednesday night Bible study, and then a Thursday woman's drop in. And she said, I tend to get six long sermons. And she said, and they're all good sermons. She says, I'm not critiquing. I'm, I'm just, but she said, 
I get virtually no time to discuss, to process, to digest. And I said, how dare you? No, I didn't say that. I said, you know, that's a pretty good critique. And listen, for the average Reformed Westerner, we love to cram our head full of knowledge. And a lot of times we have gigantic heads and little tiny cold hearts and little shriveled hands and feet that don't do much. I am not trying to promote shallow Christianity. The more depth, the better. But imagine if Eric came in here and said, next year my New Year's resolution is I'm going to get into the greatest shape in the world. And he was talking to us about his diet plan. Right? Most of us say, Eric, you're already in great shape. You don't need it. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to be like 3% body fat. Right? And he's like reading off his diet plan. And we say, oh, that's a very strict diet plan. Excellent, Eric. But what is your workout plan? He's like, yeah, I'm not working out. It's like, well, that's probably not going to work out very well for you. There's got to be input but also output. And the same thing is true in discipleship. So the Q&A, the dialogue. Listen, if somebody is living basically anywhere in the world... Do you realize the access they have at any time they want to some of the greatest sermons in the world? At any point, you could pull up a podcast by John Piper or Sinclair Ferguson. Or even you can find sermons of people that are dead and gone like Billy Graham and Martin Lloyd-Jones at any point. They don't need another sermon from you. What they need most of the time is the massaging, the talking about it. I've got two guys that I'm deciphering right now. Members at Briarwood, adults, we've been meeting together for a little over a year, and very early on in our discipleship. And, and they're both very sharp guys, and they, they read a lot, they listen to a lot of these podcasts, okay? They go to Briarwood, they're very plugged in, okay? They got a lot of knowledge. And I kind of mentioned something one morning when we were meeting about meditation. And one of them just said, Stop. Will you explain to me what the heck meditation really means? And listen, this guy's no dummy. He's read tons of books. He's taken seminary classes at Birmingham Theological Seminary. But when he got down to the practical application of how do you really meditate, and I appreciated his humility, he's like, I don't know really how to do that. And we don't have enough of that. That's what people need. The dialogue, the interaction, the Q&A. Okay? It needs to be interactive, the best kind of discipleship. Um, verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. See, they, so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Okay, Now, um, we're not exactly sure which type uh, clock they were using, but, but most likely that means it was like 10 a.m. and they hung out with him all day. Could have meant 10 p.m. and they just stayed with him all night and stayed up late talking. You may say, well, it's weird. Why do they remember the exact hour? Don't you think you'd remember the exact hour you first got to hang out one-on-one with Jesus or one-on-two? The third point is this. It needs to be intensive. It needs to be life on life. Too often, and and I am guilty of this, even when we buy into the interactive, the Q&A type discipleship, it still kind of devolves into, okay, meet me at the coffee shop, Starbucks for an hour, maybe an hour and a half if you're lucky, once a week at Starbucks, and we'll read a book together and we'll talk about it. That's not bad. That's great. You can do a lot of good there. But there needs to be some of this life-on-life interaction. Come to my house. You go read in Mark very early on. I think Mark chapter 1. Jesus went to Peter's house. He healed his mother-in-law. Okay? Even Peter had mother-in-law issues. All right? 
There was this life-on-life interaction. Let me tell you a couple of stories that will bring this home. Uh, I grew up in a great home. Not perfect, great home. Godly home. My dad was passionate about doing family worship. Okay? All the kids in our household, five of us, none of us were passionate about listening to family worship. And my dad was very persevering in trying to do it. I remember one time he literally found somewhere the entire Bible in comic strip. And he bought that and he would try to read it. We didn't care. We weren't interested, right? He's like, leave us alone, Dad. Let us eat our breakfast. Okay, in peace. Another time he got these things that were about Bill Gothard. Some of y'all probably heard of this. They were called character sketch. And they would like tell a Bible story. And then they would have an animal story to illustrate. I see some of y'all nodding, right? Listen, and my dad would do that at night. That was a little bit more interesting because it had, you know, animals in there. I'll tell you, there was one story in there. I guess it was about discernment or something. I'm not really sure. But the story was that a little boy had a pet bat. Now, why would a little boy have a pet bat? I don't know. It sounds weird to me, but he had a pet bat. He also had a box fan in his room. And the little boy figured out if I turned this box fan on level low, that the bat with its radar would, could fly through the fan. It could navigate it. If the boy turned it up to medium, he could fly through the fan. But the bat was so smart with his sonar, whatever it is bats have, when he turned it up to high, the bat would not even try to fly through there. Now, what does that have to do with God, Jesus, and the Bible? I have no clue. And I'm going to make a statement. Some of you are going to think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. That is literally the only thing I remember from family worship in my father's home. I'm not saying don't do family worship. There's probably a subconscious bedrock of truth in my heart that I'm unaware of. Here is what I'm saying. I do remember... My dad coming home from work saying, Dad, how was work? And he said, well, you know, I was driving down the highway and uh, there were some convicts on the side of the road working and I thought the Lord wanted me to stop and try to share the gospel. So I got out and tried to do it. That stuck with me. I do remember leaving Big First Baptist Church, driving to the country club to eat lunch like we typically did and there was a homeless war veteran on the side of the road in a wheelchair selling pencils. And Dad says, I'm going to pull over and try to invite this guy to go eat lunch with us. I'm like, don't do that, Dad. Right? I do remember any time I woke up early seeing my mom and my dad both reading their Bibles and praying. I do remember every time I got a spanking, there was a verse to go along with it. I do remember if I ever had a big decision, well, you need to pray about it. You understand what I'm saying? More is caught than taught. I'm all for Bible study. I'm all for family worship. I'm all for Sunday worship. Get in people's lives. When I first came on staff with Campus Outreach, my first four and a half years was in Florence, Alabama. And we saw a lot of people come to Christ. And when I was leaving, I mean, it had only been four and a half years. So I, I still was pretty much connected to everybody that had professed faith over those four and a half years. And I did a survey with all of them. And I basically said, what's the, what's the main thing that you got from being involved in campus outreach? And obviously, those that had come to Christ, that was like, well, you share the gospel with me, or I heard the gospel at a Bible study. What? Okay. But a second, and I mean a close second, was this. Just letting us be in your home and see the way that you and your wife and your kids interacted. Because most of them had come from very broken homes. It wasn't memorizing verses. It wasn't the accountability. It wasn't the prayer. It wasn't even the evangelism training. It was you led me to Christ and then you brought me in your home and I got to see how a godly family worked. More is called than taught. Why, why do most people don't do this kind of narrow focused discipleship? Because it costs something. It's time intensive. It's painful. It's not easy. The rewards don't come quickly, but in the long run, it's always worth it. The fourth point, it's transformative. Verse 40, 
One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Listen, John the Baptist is teaching his two disciples, Hey, that's the Lamb of God, that's the Messiah, that's the guy I've been talking about. And it led to transformation. They said, We love you, John. You... You're like the greatest mentor of all time, but we're leaving you to go to Jesus. It transformed their lives. They hung out with Jesus one whole day, and they, like I said earlier, the implication was John said, I gotta go tell my brother James. Andrew said, I gotta go tell Peter, Big Peter Andrew. Okay? Philip, when he gets called, he says, I gotta go tell Nathaniel. Who was that? His best friend, his business partner, his cousin, not exactly sure. But it ought to lead to multiplication. The new believer, the young believer, the immature believer. Listen, oftentimes, guys, the best evangelists are the brand new Christians because most of their friends are still lost. Unfortunately, most of us don't have enough lost friends. And they're so passionate about it. They're so shocked. They're not bored with Christianity yet. They're not numbed and inoculated. They're overjoyed. They're happy to talk about it. Get them out there doing it early. But here's maybe the beautiful thing. This famous place where Jesus says, You're Simon? I'm going to call you Rocky. And almost certainly what he's saying there is, You've been a fearful man up till now. I'm going to make you fearless. And John Calvin says, There's a sense in which that's true for all Christians. You come to Christ, He's going to transform your life. He's going to make you a rock. He's going to make you steadfast. You're not going to be perfect, right? We all know Peter's life was a roller coaster ride. And so is ours, is it not? But the long-term goal over the long haul is more and more steadfastness and Christ-likeness. So let me just close with this. The emphasis here, how we started, how it ends, and what it is in the middle. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. We found the one that Moses and prophets. The best discipleship is always Christ-centered. You're always pointing back to Christ. You're not really making disciples of yourself. There is a sense, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, I think, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. But only follow me to the degree that I follow Christ. Because if you follow me too much, I got some strengths and I got plenty of weaknesses and some blind spots to go with them. And you'll end up emulating some of those. But if you follow me as just kind of a beacon and a guy that's really pointing to Christ... And part of what that means is we have to be real open-handed and humble, like John was. Hey, there's the Lamb of God. His two best disciples said, see ya. <laughs> we got to be okay with that. It's not about me. It's not about my fame. It's not about my glory, my reputation. It's about the glory of Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. And if we keep it grounded in gospel truth. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I might be a half step ahead of you, more mature sinner, but I'm still a sinner. I still need a Savior. I might can teach you a couple of lessons. I might can model a few things for you. I can't save your soul. I can't keep you saved. I can't keep you persevering. Keep pointing them back to the risen Savior who's paid for all our sins, past, present, and future. 
And that's the real groundwork, bedrock, foundation of any kind of good discipleship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, like I said, I really mean this, Lord. I'm not just praying a prayer to go through the motions to end my time. Uh, I really believe these are good principles from your word. But sometimes, literally, the devil's in the details. It's hard to know how exactly we are supposed to apply these truths in our individual lives. And I do think sometimes Satan snatches truth out of our minds because we get overwhelmed with not knowing exactly how and when and where to apply it. So I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for everybody hearing this, Lord. Would you give us wisdom like you promised to do in James 1.5 about how we can best personally be involved in the Great Commission? Sharing our faith, following up new believers, mentoring less mature believers. Let the gospel be multiplying in Birmingham, Alabama to the nations. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. Thank you.